Hey, this is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with Professor Charles Lansing about the Holocaust and Nazi Germany. Professor Lansing is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut. He received his PhD in history from Yale University, and his research focuses on Germany in the 19th and 20th centuries, especially the Third Reich and the post-war German states. I've become increasingly interested in World War II lately, after watching a barrage of documentaries on the subject, and on the Holocaust in particular. And I learned a lot in this episode that I didn't know about Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. I'm going to post a link to Professor Lansing's work, if you care to dig deeper on the stuff that he's doing. And in particular, I'll link to his most recent book called From Nazism to Communism, German School Teachers Under Two Dictatorships which we spend some time talking about in the episode. So buckle your seatbelts for a crazy historical ride. I give you Professor Charles Lansing. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I thought we could start just by asking you kind of a simple introductory question. What made you want to become a historian and focus your study on German history and the Third Reich and 18th century Germany in particular? Okay, um, great question. Um, I, uh, as an adolescent, had a real interest in history. Um, it was a, kind of a bit of a quirk of faith that uh, where I went to school, we had to learn four years of a modern foreign language in eighth grade for very kind of adolescent rebellion reasons. I picked German. I don't really know why. Um, and I really liked the language. I liked learning it. Um, by the time I was finishing up high school and I got to college, I realized I could do more interesting things in history with German history since I could read the primary sources. Um, it was kind of exciting. And so that naturally kind of led me into um, focusing on modern German history. Yeah, so what, what is the, I was wondering, what exactly is the research process like as a historian? Because in, in philosophy, it's really just, you know, philosophers running thought experiments and reading everything else that everyone else has said mm -hmm. on it, and then just kind of synthesizing your own perspective. But it, it's a little more on the ground or discovering sure. archival yeah, collections, I, mean, I gather. Uh, there there are uh, um, numerous ways in which you can go about, like how you can come up with a topic, how you can take a kind of... Um, vague topic and make it uh, into a research project. Um, often you just, uh, there's an issue you want to explore um, or there's a question you would like to seek to answer and you uh, would kind of read up first um, what other historians have said, what we call the historiography. You know, how has that topic been answered? Uh, how has it been um, investigated, you know, kind of analyzed? Um, and then you, when you get to, you know, you, you then find your kind of evidence, usually, you know, primary sources, often archival sources. Uh, and then you, you know, and, 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 you know, kind of coming organically out of your analysis of the sources would be an original argument that would somehow be different than what others have said, but, can, you know, be part of that scholarly conversation. So um, to give the background, I mean, sometimes it can just, uh, <clears throat> it can arise from, uh, you know, often personal experience. Um, doesn't always, but with my first book, it very much came out of a personal experience I had. I, my second year in Germany, 
after I graduated from college in 1993, I went back to Germany and I was living in the town of Wismar in the far northeast on the Baltic. And this was three years after reunification, four years after the fall of the wall. So I found myself working in a, in a school uh, in a community that was very much wrestling with just enormous change, right? The you know, 40 years of communism had disappeared, wall had collapsed, and the people in this community were trying to adjust to radically different political, economic, social circumstances. And that, that, that idea of how does a society imagine like overnight just change direction, how you stop being one thing and in a matter of years uh, you're expected to, to be something radically different. That Seeing that in a kind of contemporary um, environment made me wonder how something similar did or didn't happen after 45, after the collapse. So I wasn't so much interested in writing the history and, uh, of, of what happened in 89, um, but mm -hmm. when I entered graduate school in 1996, I very much was interested in the question of how do we explain the 16 million Eastern Germans who had been under the Nazi state for 12 years, many of them of whom had been very good Nazis. How do they, how are they turned into, or, or are they turned into, uh, good communists in this new East Germany? I mean, do they contribute to the creation of this new regime? How do they adjust to that? So that's a, that's a case in which I, you know, the issue was first. I was really like, I would love to explore this question. I would love to kind of see, and then you go out and you find the sources that would let you tell that story. And that, for me, meant I spent about two years in uh, different German archives. Yeah, so th this uh, book that you're referencing, From Nazism to Communism, German School Teachers Under Two Dictatorships, that's really what got me onto your work. Mm -hmm. and, and there, and like I, we were talking about before the podcast, I was surprised at how, the, how resilient the German educational structure was under the two authoritarian regimes, mm -hmm. Nazism and then communism after 1945. So I thought we could kind of creep up on that. Mm -hmm. And I thought we could start with just um, the, Ver the Treaty of Versailles and okay. how that affected Germany economically after okay. World War One, and how that gave rise to Nazism. It, for me, okay. like, a, could I close this? Yeah, you can. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, for me, I just really got passionate about this topic I, I just i mean i watched a world war ii documentary and i just really got more insight into the holocaust than i had ever had before and i was just astonished at how humanity was capable of industrial killing at a mass scale especially in living memory it seems like as a species we should have been beyond such barbarity and then that kind of combined with the anti-semitism that's on the rise mm -hmm. in today's world mm -hmm. kind of like has motivated me to explore this topic so <coughs> So yeah, I guess I could. I guess the first question would be, could you just explain to the listeners what the Treaty of Versailles was and what role that played in enabling the rise of Nazism? Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's that, that's that's a, an important question, and there's a lot of you, you, you kind of have to unpack that. There's a lot of uh, important material in that. Um, yeah. I mean, you want to. So the Treaty of Versailles had to do with. Um, the consequences for losing the First World War. And it explains why most Germans were deeply unhappy and dissatisfied with uh, how the war ended and uh, the, the price of peace. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is, um, so, so Versailles doesn't necessarily indicate, I mean, there's not, it's, you wouldn't want to draw a straight line from Versailles to the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. What, what, what Versailles most clearly helps us understand is the incredible 
problems that Germany's first democracy had when it was created at the same time, the Weimar Republic, mm. um, and it helps us to understand why uh, the, like the democratic model began under really difficult circumstances and then ultimately was found wanting by most Germans. So, so there's, there's a, a related story that's not that, that they're not identical. So there's the collapse of democracy that opens the space for a, an authoritarian anti-democratic party. And then there's the related story of the rise of the Nazi party that happened, that ends up becoming the party that occupies that space. Okay, so the collapse of democracy happened that well before Hitler came to power no, in 1933. No, they're they're happening they're at happening the same, same time, time, but um, it wasn't inevitable that Hitler's party would be the one that rise to power. So the idea is that I mean, you can't just say, "Well, democracy is collapsing." Okay, and so of course Hitler comes to power. I mean, Hitler in 1928 and the Nazi Party—they were one of a number of far-right parties. They were, you know, in fact, tiny and insignificant in 28 for the most part, um, and. In a four-year period, they will effectively push aside traditional right-wing options, other kind of novel or, or kind of new radical uh, right-wing models and parties, and they will kind of assert themselves as the dominant kind of um, far-right alternative to democracy. But that it, their side didn't, you know, have to lead to that because at the right. same time as that's happening, as as Germans are fleeing democracy, there are also many of them are also going into, uh, you know, the radical left anti-democratic movement, the Communist Party, the KPD, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a collapse of democracy and and the and the flourishing of the two principal anti-democratic parties, one on the right, the Nazis, one on the radical left. Um, but no, Versailles. Um, was you know a, a, a very punitive piece. You know Germans lost territory. There was a, a huge reparations bill that they had to pay that had you know enormous psychological impacts. Um, you know they lost uh, they lost territory outright. Other important parts of the country were being administered by the Allies, and so it was a a seen as a harsh piece that um, you know many Germans uh, were very angry about. And of course, the imperial the people who kind of um, Conducted the war, didn't sign the peace accord. It was the the, the you know the new kind of um, center left Republican government that ends up signing the peace treaty right uh, at the end of the day, and so they're going to be blamed for it, right? I mean, it seems like in the minds of, of Germans that you know with peace and with democracy comes humiliation and loss, impoverishment and hardship. Mm. Yeah. So, am I correct in thinking that? when Hitler and the Nazi party were really starting to gain power, it wasn't initially focused on anti-Semitism, but it was more focused on the economic message and bringing jobs back to Germany and, and, and all the rest. It was more economic-based, and then the anti-Semitism came more explicit afterwards? Yeah, um, yeah that, that's um, that's largely true. I mean, well, All of my knowledge is just based on a few documentaries. No, so. uh, no, I mean, <laughs> Feel free to correct but, me. But I think you're getting at something which is right, which is, okay, so when you're talking about the rise of the Nazi party, you're talking about their electoral success. Mm-hmm. You know, how did they convince Germans to vote for them? And um, I think the consensus among historians is that, you know, at the outset, the Nazis are deeply anti-Semitic. And if you were a German voter or a German and you were deeply anti-Semitic, you are probably already moving toward the Nazis. So it wasn't a, a, a main part of their electoral propaganda. They're not, because, I mean, you know, in 1930, if you're an anti-Semite, you probably already are a party member. So why why have that be 
your 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 main point that you're trying to kind of sell yourself with voters. So um, it was usually other issues. Could be economic issues. Could be revising the Treaty of Versailles. Could be issues of nationalism and, and you know, national humiliation. But but yeah, they're not uh, really foregrounding as they are fighting for votes. Uh, you know, um, their their future anti-Semitic uh, program. Mm. Yes, I I want to just like talk a little bit about Hitler in particular. And I was wondering, how did his experience in World War One kind of shape his views or radicalize him in various ways? Because all I know is he used to be an artist, then he failed at that, Mm -hmm. and he was a soldier. And then so can you just like clarify that? Uh, personal evolution. Yeah, and that's that's you know like like many uh, questions in in history, uh, there are differing viewpoints, right? I mean, historians disagree. I mean, that's that's the heart of what we do. It's about interpretation. Um, it's about you know kind of the competition of interpretations. And so for the longest time, really since forty five, people assumed that the war radicalized Hitler, right? That it um, it made him the man he be he seemed to be in the Third Reich. Uh, there's actually a um, two books that came out in the last 10 years that have really quite convincingly challenged that view to show that Hitler, you know, uh, and this is based on, on um, documents from men who were in his unit, uh, his immediate superiors. I mean, he wasn't a pronounced anti-Semite. He wasn't the kind of forceful leader that he he stylizes himself as in Mein Kampf, which is like, you know, a pure work of propaganda. I mean, Hitler will put the story in Mein Kampf, right? So in 25, he'll start to he reinvents himself, and he and, and in that reinvention. While he was in prison, right? Right. While he was in prison, uh, you know that in that reinvention, the war is this formative experience. But in reality, this man, I think Thomas Faber, and uh, his, his two books shows pretty clearly that that wasn't true at all during the war. That it's in fact the year or two after the war when he's kind of trying to find himself and 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 find a kind of purpose in post-war Munich that he begins to adopt some of the principal values that will be at the heart of who he is. So, no, it's not um, the war itself. Uh, and then, in fact, there, you know, I mean, Thomas Weber in one of his, I think in the first or the, no, in the second book, he, you know, he makes a fairly convincing um, claim that, you know, that Hitler is flirting with social democracy in the first kind of year of the chaos of post-war Bavaria and post-war Munich. And even some of the people that when he's working for the for the military there, um, uh, and that in fact it's going to be the Treaty of Versailles and uh, developments in 1919, 1920 that will kind of push him to where he is. But it's not the trench experience by any means. Mm, okay, that's interesting. So he, so Hitler, he officially rises to power in 1933, right? Yeah, he's a appointed chancellor, not elected, um, but he's appointed chancellor. And then the in German January dies the next year. In 34. Mm-hmm. And then that's when he declares himself your leader? Yeah, I mean, that's when he starts to call. I mean, I mean you know, he is as, as uh, I mean, uh, as uh, as the um, chancellor of, of Germany beginning in, in, in um, the end of January 1933, I mean, he's he is very quickly able within six to eight months to, to you know, to effectively set up the dictatorship that is the Third Reich. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't really, I mean, he, um, Hindenburg's death in 34... Um, is a kind of um, isn't isn't really a watershed, but it, it it means that the last possible curtailment of his power is gone. But 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 I mean, he doesn't grow in power at that moment. He it just um, you know the the theoretically possible um, opposition is removed. But but he is very much um, uh, you know. Um, 
a man who's created a dictatorship, not not obviously a totalitarian state and not a, not a dictatorship that most people imagine. I mean, uh, you know, certainly in the last 30 years, the scholarship has indicated that the Nazi state functioned very differently than we think. But but he is. I mean, he's the sole man in charge of the party. He's the chancellor of Germany. They they are restructuring it to be a kind of highly centralized, top-down, anti-democratic kind of authoritarian state. And and it's come yeah. And and that revolution, what they call it, you know, the, the nationalist revolution, you know, the, the the seizure of state, is effectively over by the time Hindenburg dies. So how much of the German public was with him at this point? Like my understanding is he won in 1933. It was kind of a landslide. Victory was the majority of the German public no. already on board here. How popular was he? So, so the Nazi Party never won a majority of votes in a free election, mm. right? Um, he's appointed. I mean, technically, uh, he's a, appointed, not elected, and it has to do with a kind of like um, kind of machinations uh, of a small group of aristocrats who are uh, in the circle of Hindenburg, right? So, so. Um, Hindenburg's son, Hindenburg's secretary, and some others, a couple of you know generals, uh, conspire to convince Hindenburg to appoint Hitler chancellor. They have this idea that they can control him; that, uh, it, that they'll still really be, work. yeah, well, yeah, that they'll still be the cabinet, and Hitler may be you know in charge of it, but other important positions will be held by non-Nazis. It all falls apart. Hitler outplays them, but um, <laughs> but obviously, Hitler is being considered for being picked as chancellor because he is in charge of the largest party in the parliament. Not, not a majority, but it's still large, right? So so, um, so I think it is, I mean, no more than 45 people, no, no more than, I think, 45% of our Germans are voting for the Nazis. Um, even in the semi-free, semi-unfree elections in March, but certainly um, in the two elections of 32, they don't get a majority. So a majority are not supporting it, but a lot are. And it is a um, – uh, the Nazi support is drawn from a kind of wide different groups of German people in the electorate, right? Um, he's, uh, and and it, it took decades of, of, of really good historical scholarship to kind of identify. But, for example, he's overrepresented in – uh, among the uh, upper middle class, the elites. I mean, for a long time we thought it was, you know, that the, the supporters of Nazis were the lower middle class, a kind of protest vote. I mean, it was kind of people who were on the margins and, and, and fearing being kind of um, immiserated into the kind of proletariat that they, that they uh, and, and there was substantial support mm-hmm. uh, among what we would consider the lower middle classes. But there's also disproportionately a lot of support among upper middle class so, I didn't know that. you know, the highly educated, many of them, especially if they were nationalist inclined, are very pro-Nazi. Um, 25% of the working class voted. That's not a majority, but 25% of, you know, millions of Germans are still a lot of Germans. <laughs> so, you know, um, there is truth to the fact that the Nazi party was what the Germans call the first Volkspartei. It was a party that transcended, you know, um, kind of narrow interests, whether that's, um, denom- you know, religious, geographic, um, and they appealed to Germans from from all sectors, both north and south. Not so much Catholic and Protestant. That 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 not really up to the election. The Catholics had their own German center party. But in terms of urban, rural, uh, different kind of class levels, um, different, you know, regionally, the Nazis um, are, are are quite popular. Um, so you don't have a majority of people who seem to be voting Nazi, um, but. 
if that's the case in January of 33, certainly on the eve of the war, um, the vast, vast majority of Germans are deeply supportive mm. of Hitler. So if when he comes to power, he's not loved by everybody and not kind of passionately supported by everybody, um, on the eve of the invasion of, of Poland, I think you can say that, yeah, most people, um, you know, his many diplomatic successes, the economic turnaround, all that stuff. Um, Wasn't he at, time person of the year in the 30s? I think he was, yeah. I think it was, <laughs> I want to say 34. I could be wrong, um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that, yeah, there's, the, I mean, there was the belief that, you know, he turned the economy around, whereas I think we now think, certainly economic historians and others think that he happened to come to power at a moment when, you know, it was kind of, you know, just the economic cycle was bringing Germany. I mean, so, so reforms made earlier, years earlier, or, you know, shortly before he is appointed chancellor, that they're having the effect. And it's not so much the building of the Autobahn or these things, these make work projects, you know, putting people back to work. He was riding an economic wave. Yeah, I mean, he obviously didn't do anything to, to jeopardize that or to derail it. But, but I mean, he wasn't the sole author of the economic turnaround by any means. But he's seen as it, right? I mean, if you're in office and times are good, you get the credit, right? And so, um, so the, the number of people who are passionately supportive of him um, just uh, over the course of from 33 to 39 grow and grow and grow. Mm. Yeah, so I'm interested to get more insight into how the anti-Semitism becomes ramped up increasingly. My understanding that it's kind of a gradual affair and it becomes more and more explicit. First, it kind of starts, or one of the first inklings is people are burning books and then, you know, kind of gets to a head with crystal knots or the night of broken glass or whatnot. Another thing that I was uh, astonished to discover was that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Jewish population in Germany only constituted about 1% of the population. There are about 500,000 yeah. Jews, which just doesn't dovetail with the idea, this conspiracy theory that the Jews are have hijacked all the levels of power in society. So could you just say more about how um, the anti-Semitism does ramp up and how the public increasingly accepts it or doesn't mm-hmm. accept it in their reaction? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge, huge. It's a big question. <laughs> question and and and, and story. I got a bunch and, of big questions. And for an you. important one. Um, yeah, but you're right. I mean, I think it's like 0.96 percent of the population in 33 is Jewish, which is, comes out to be about five hundred thousand. Um, and there are debates as to why that might mean. I mean, I think one interpretation. I mean, if if they were quite common and everybody knew Jews, then the demonization of them may have been less successful. But if it's if most people felt like they didn't really know a Jew, mm. and the Nazis are saying this is what the Jews are like, maybe you wouldn't have to convince them so much because they didn't have their own kind of immediate experience. Obviously, That's many many uh, German Jews, you know, uh, you know, had had um, meaningful relationships with 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 um, Gentiles, German Gentiles. Um, in the case of, of, of anti-Semitism, sorry, so if, as, as, as uh, most believe, that anti-Semitism wasn't an important part of the kind of electoral agenda of the Nazis as they came to power, that doesn't mean to say that it wasn't important for Nazism. I mean, there is, uh, many believe that, that anti-Semitism was a, a kind of fundamental value for the Nazis. It was one of the most important things that, that, that kind of glued together the different Nazi leaders. I mean, once they get in power, you see these Nazi leaders kind of all start going in their own direction. And they have, there's a real heterogeneity in terms of their vision of what the Third Reich should be. Some are really into kind of, a, you know, this kind of neo, I mean, just, just quirky things. And they're all kind of doing their things. But one of the, one 
of the few issues that unites them all passionately, a glue that binds them together, is this hatred of Jews, is anti-Semitism. So for the Nazi leadership and for many in the, you know, in the Nazi kind of um, you know, mid and lower levels of the party and, and the state, it's, it's very important. Um, how that gets implemented and um, to, you know, in, 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 with what intensity levels, there is a huge debate, and there has been really since, since 45, since the end of you know, the Third Reich, um, about, you know, was there a master plan? You know, um, you know are the Nazis uh, kind of starting immediately with a kind of step-by-step process that, you know, they're, in their own mind, they're imagining leads to extermination? Um, the consensus among his, you know, scholars today would be that that's not the case. That, that Hitler didn't come to power in 33 thinking that there's going to be an Auschwitz or, or you know, extermination. That the Nazis, uh, there's a, a famous book called The Twisted Road to Auschwitz. And the idea is that the Nazis, and I think this is the most believe, and certainly I believe, and I think the evidence makes this very clear, is that the Nazis come to power with the desire to, to neutralize the Jews. And what they understand it means to neutralize, to kind of remove them from influence to, to, to kind of disempower them um, changes over the course of the 12 years, right? So initially they come to power and they want to remove them from society, from politics, from the economy. So it is, and, and, and this means, and we're not talking about physical removal, right? That's going to, let's say, be the second stage, the deportations and the visions of, of deporting them to these different colonies. Just like dismissals from a job or something? Right, right. So, you know, it is about kicking them out of chess clubs. It is about kicking them out of, um, dismissing them from jobs, um, not letting them teach German youth. Uh, it is about firing them from, from um, you know, state, uh, state employment. It is convincing, for example, the equivalent of the American Medical Association. You know, very early in the spring of 33, the National Organization of German... Um, doctors just expel all their members, you know, and, that, and that's happening. Everything from like AAA, the auto club, to I mean, so it's happening at all these different levels. It's being done from below, meaning people who, say, you know, this is what the Nazis want. Um, it's going to happen, right? I mean, Hitler does not order, you know, like a, a you know a, a football team, a kind of uh, you know, municipal football team in some small town to kick out its Jewish members, but that's going to happen, right? That's because you know the the people who run that that municipal football team or something are going to go ahead and do that. Um, he's not ordering that the national, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of the AMA or, or the national organization of, 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 of uh, lawyers to, to, you know, expel. Um, or he's not going to, you know, uh, they're not going to order the Protestant church to kick out Jews who converted, right? But that's going to happen you know, very quickly. And so you get this effort to remove them um, from society, from politics, from 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 positions of authority and influence, right? But they're still around. I mean, you haven't segregated them physically. They're not in a kind of ghetto yet, and you haven't shipped them off to Madagascar or wherever. It's just, um, it just you know, and so uh, that's, and then that is the thrust. That's that's how they understand the vision of how to deal with the Jews, and that's going to change come 38, 38, 39, uh, when there's going to, that's going to be found wanting, and the decision is going to be made to we need to physically remove them. Again, they're still not thinking of killing them. Not in any in any. There's no evidence to really that that claims that or or, or convincingly shows that. Um, but and that's when you get plans for reservations, deporting them, 
either into Siberia or to Western Russia. Eventually, in 1940, they're going to have this great idea, and it goes to the highest levels. I mean, Hitler's going to sign off on this, and then they're going to send them all to Madagascar, the island. Hmm. Just ship them down there and let them all, you know, perish slowly. Uh, and then it's in 41, with the invasion of the Soviet Union, you're going to get the fundamental radicalization where previous ideas of, you know, a kind of symbolic separation, separate the Jews symbolically by removing them from society, or the physical separation by just kicking them out somewhere will, will be inadequate, and they will come to the idea of um, physical extermination. So how is the public responding as this gradual process is taking place? Like with the, the Nuremberg late race laws in 1935, mm-hmm. where they kind of codify it into law that Germans can't marry Jews and there are other stipulations. Are they, is there just kind of a gradual acceptance or people are, they don't like it, but their career prospects are better because people are being displaced and they can now fulfill those jobs? Or what, what is the public reception like within the country? Uh, probably all of that. I mean, there's not massive, significant resistance. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, off, it's often depicted that, you know, an early action uh, to, to deal with the Jewish threat is the April boycott, 1933. And, uh, it's, and, and it, it's, a, it's a real failure. I mean, the Nazis decide they're going to have this. And they, they, they intended to be open-ended and uh, you know, to strike a severe blow to the economic power of German Jewry. And they're going to boycott them all. And, and you know, they, so they start this boycott, and it's immediately clear to them um, that most non-Jewish Germans are just ignoring it. They're just not on board with it. You know, if, if they've been shopping from the corner grocer who happens to be Jewish, they've been doing that for 10 years, they're going to still do it, right? So the Nazis, it's, it's seen and interpreted as a sense that, you know, at the beginning of the regime, many Germans weren't willing to go far with radical Nazi kind of anti-Jewish measures. And um, that's debatable, but, but there is that interpretation. Certainly over time, there's a growing acceptance. Um, you know, it's important to realize that these measures uh, are legal, right? This is the legal government. I mean, Hitler is legally appointed, right? This is all. And so, um, you know, this will not be the case when we get to the murder of them because, you know, murder is still a crime and they never pass a law sanctioning this. But, you know, when they designate that certain parks are off limits to Jews or certain park benches or Jews can only be out. I mean, that's that's a legal government saying this this is this is a new law. So it's just more normalized in Virginia. It gets bet. normalized and 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 um, sometimes people then so if you bookend a lack of public participation in the April boycott of thirty three with the lack of public outcry with Kristallnacht in 38, people like to say, well, this is in the five-year period, you can see how the issue has been normalized or people are coming on board with it. But there's, you know, but we see a, a different public reaction to another high-profile act of anti-Semitic um, kind of activity by the Nazis. Uh, and yet it's very different than the than initial one. And so something is happening in the five years, you know. Um, uh, Removing them symbolically, removing them from communities, again, just in terms of symbolism. Um, you know, one scholar put it very nicely. I mean, that, that, that was the social death of German Jewry. Before you can get to physical death, before you can imagine Germans being prepared to, to murder them, um, they will have to be convic- conditioned to, to the sense that the, the Jew is not a fellow German, a fellow human, you know, that, and, and then that's a, that's a, that's a process that's going to happen. So fast forwarding to the death camps and the final solution, when does the final solution really come to fruition as a plan? 
and and also how much does the German public know about that as it's going on? In the one of the documentaries I was watching, um, the Allied American forces find one of the camps and asking people in the surrounding towns whether they knew of it, they all just um, plead ignorance and there's doubt as to whether that's, you know, how could they actually not know what's going on and all of that. So I, yeah, I guess just to take the first part first, when sure. did this really become a plan? Uh, again, like like so many of these big issues, um, and yeah, sorry, I know it's, these are it's debatable. No, 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 no. It's debatable in the sense that, I mean, and it's um, serious historians using evidence and making um, strong arguments uh, differ as to when it began, right? When, when do you get that shift? I mean, if I said like, you know, it's a twisted road to Auschwitz, if we talk about stages in terms of German persecution, Nazi persecution of German Jews or, or Jews, you know, I've talked about, you know, again, the, you know, the kind of social death and then, the, you know, the idea of physical displacement. If the third um, is physical extermination and murder, um, I think almost all the vast majority of historians, whether specialists in the Holocaust or in German history, would argue that it happens sometime between summer of 41 and early 42. Okay, and, and it's, it has everything to do with Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, I think the more, I, there are some who believe um, that it's in the late summer and there are some who believe it's actually December. I mean, I think most see it as sometime late summer, fall, late fall, 41. And there's been an enormous amount of scholarship, much of it really smart and innovative, where they try to like really pin down, because there is no, we have no written order. We have no date on which it's, you know, the, uh, you know and in fact, we assume it, the order was transmitted verbally. Um, and so there's been really creative work to figure out Based on like where does Himmler travel? What's his travel schedule over the you know, over the uh, uh, the fall of forty one? When does he go to some place that you know six months later we have a, a death camp for example? When when are certain people going places and meeting with people that might be an indication that they've been ordered to and thus a plan's been hatched, right? And Heinrich Himmler, he's the main architect here. Of the yeah, final I mean solution. he's he's in charge of the SS and he's going to be uh, you know uh, yeah the main architect. Um, you know, you even see, and this is something that my students look at in, in our Holocaust course, that, you know, before you get to the kind of mechanized mass murder through the, through the death camps, um, you know, the, the so-called Holocaust by bullets, the first wave, is not mechanized and it's not, uh, it's, it's just, you know, um, up to between a million and a million and a half, we estimate, estimate um, European Jews are shot to death mm. in the first kind of year, nine months of beginning um, in, in, with the invasion of the Soviet Union. And where I'm going with this is, so there, you can see an escalation escalation in the activities of the mobile killing squads that are carrying this out beginning in June, such that by, by September, they've gone from killing, they, they have a kill list when they start. I mean, they're given, like, these are the kind of people you're going to shoot when you, when you move behind the, the advancing Wehrmacht. And, you know, first and foremost are really um, uh, Bolsheviks, uh, commissars, so political, political expert, you know, political authorities within the Red Army units, you know, Bolshevik uh, uh, leaders of the party and leaders of the state. It says very explicitly Jewish men who are members of the party or the state and some other groups. And, you know, we actually have, there's a very famous report called the Jaeger Report, um, which uh, it's compiled in December, but he's like, he sends back to Berlin. These are everybody we shot. 
in the last six months, uh, well, from, from June. And they break it down by place and victim. So it says, you know, we go to a countess on this day in September and we, sh- we shot 56 Bolsheviks, um, you know, 35 of these and 45 male Jews. And it's every day, right? And so when you look at this document, you can see that they start, you know, operating on the kind of killing orders they were given at the beginning. And it's really stark. You can see it. Um, and they, they are shooting in July Jewish men, small numbers of them, then larger numbers. And then at some point, in, in, in fact, in, for the Jaeger report, you see that it's one day, like the 13th to the 14th or the 14th to the 15th of, of August. All of a sudden, they start shooting just hundreds of Jewish women and children as well as men. And from that moment forward, they basically only are killing Jews. And, and they go from just like adult male Jews to men, women, and children. If you, you know, they, 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 they stop coming to, you see not only in the body count, but, but uh, it's pretty clear, I think in all cases in the Jaeger report after this period, that when they move into a locale, they kill every Jew. Whereas before they would show up, they'd shoot 50 of them, and then they might come back to that, that village a week later and shoot a number, a small number. But now all of a sudden they're going to come to some place, they're going to shoot every one of them, and they're not going to come back. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that, I mean, you know, you, you infer from that that it sounds like something's changed. Like, you know, there's clearly, or not clearly, but, you know, whether they made that decision themselves or they were ordered to, but they have changed their killing orders. They are now focusing on Jews and they're doing it in a different way. Um, there's even, you know, there's some very good work done about imagining the meaning of that. So, you know, an argument goes that if, they're, if the decision to exterminate European Jewry is made in the late summer, when the invasion of the Soviet Union is going so well, it possibly reflects this idea that the Nazis decide to kill Jews out of a sense of, of, um, of uh, exhilaration. Like, you know, they feel like, you know, we're going to win. Like, I mean, we got we, this. We so got this. Let's ramp it up. Let's ramp, ramp up, up the and, radical And then radical let's think big. Like, you know, we're about to win this thing. We're about to take Moscow. I mean, they weren't, but, you know, uh, uh, you know and so let's just go big. You know, don't go small. And let, let, let's just do something that we'd love to do or, you know, let's dream big and do it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, so, I mean, people who, who try to explain the decision to, to exterminate, uh, you know, Coming from that point, they would they could look at all of a sudden late summer when everything's going well. There are some who say no, it's December, and then if they and then one argument from that is the exact opposite. You know, they've not taken Moscow; they've halted. The winter set. I mean, you know that an argument can be made that you know if they that the failure to take Moscow means that the invasion of the Soviet Union is is, is over. They've lost. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take before the Russians get to Berlin, right? And some have argued that uh, given that fact, the decision to kill is then one of desperation. Mm. You know, it's all going to hell. Let's just burn it all down. Like, kind if we're like, going to go, take them with us kind of thing. It's the opposite take. It is the opposite take. And so here, you know, trying to kind of establish exactly when it happened can be very meaningful. But but there's, um, but I would say the consensus is, certainly for uh, historians of the Holocaust in German history, s- late summer fall at some point in 41. Mm. Um, there's a very rich debate as to, because we don't believe that that, that Berlin is calling all the shots, that, that there is definitely a bit of a kind of feedback, feedback loop in which these, these groups are sent out and they're, and they're told to do certain things, or they're told that this is a war of ideological and racial extermination and conquest. But there is initiative by local 
Nazi forces on the ground where they take their own initiative. And in some cases, Berlin hears about that and says, oh, that's great. That's what, it's great that you're doing that. You know, you all should be doing that, right? So it's not... Mm, so some of it's kind of more bottom-up than yes, strictly top-down? definitely a serious bottom-up element. The dynamic, it is both bottom-up as well as top-down. It's not that the Nazis are sitting there at every stage from spring of 41 to December saying, do this, do this, do this. I mean, they are very much responding to what they're hearing, what's happening in the field, and then coming up with a policy that they then tell everyone to do. Mm. Yeah, so another question I have on the... Oh, and the last one about the death camps is... Um, so, I mean, one of the great lies, and there's no other way to put it, about uh, the Holocaust um, told m- immediately after 45 is that most Germans didn't know. Um, right, right. You know, uh, what makes it seem plausible is that the Germans, you know, since this order was oral, you know, they're not, they don't hide the Nuremberg race laws. They don't really, you can't hide Kristallnacht. You can't hide a lot of the persecution. They can't hide the deportations. They're shipping them somewhere. Uh, but, you know, they know that most Germans, go back to your question, um, even if they are seemingly on board with much of the Nazi anti-Semitism, they probably are not on board with outright murder and a murder of, let's say, 10 to 12 million, you know, what they intended. So they're going to put these extermination places, you know, the, 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 uh, the extermination uh, camps far out, nowhere near Germany, right? I mean, you know, the concentration camps, which have been in Germany since 33, 34, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, and when the war gets going, like a, you know, I joke that a city, a, a town like Stores might have had like four or five, right? I mean, they're small and they're there to, you know, they might be on next to a factory for factory labor when you get slave labor. So the existence of concentration camps are super well known. The Nazis really never hid that. But that's different than these extermination camps. So they're put way out there. Having said that, and because they know that, yeah, and the Nazis are not broadcasting it. I mean, they, they broadcast at Dachau. I mean, they were very, they publicized it. They were very proud. I mean, it was part of their kind of law and order shtick in 33, 34. Like, we're tough on the criminals. Look at us. We have these special new prisons. So that's what the concentration camps are advertised as? Just kind of like prison labor camps? Well, I mean, just, just especially um, punitive, severe prisons. Uh, and it was the case, but before really the war, that you would go serve your sentence and you were released. I mean, mm-hmm. you go there, spend six months, spend a year, and then you're sent back. And you know, and and uh, you know, they, they you know there were periodicals. You know, there was like the equivalent of like a Time magazine where they go and they have a photo shoot. This is what they can. This is what they look like, and they're very proud of it. Like we are taking these 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 traitors, these criminals, these real threats. And we are we are dealing with them in a harsh fashion, and we are fixing them, and then we're going to release them back. That all changes once the war gets going, and you know people are not really being released from Dachau, Buchenwald, places like that. But but you know, 35, 36, 37, go to Dachau, serve your sentence, you're released. The extermination camps are far out. Okay, so that clear indication that they're trying to keep this secret. Mm. But the larger answer, and the reason I had to say this, is that. Um, because you have the Holocaust by bullets, and because you have millions of Wehrmacht soldiers, and you have tens of thousands of Germans who are part of the occupation government in Eastern Europe, um, word circulates. Everybody knows. Not well. Okay, that's not true. But I mean, it is um, the worst kept secret by '43, and we have ex- evidence that that you know people are talking about it all the time in '43. What's happening to the Jews? They may not know that Cyclone B is being used. They may not know about the fake showers, like at an Auschwitz or something. You know, but but it's clear um, because mil- you know soldiers have cycled. You know, they, they've gone home on furlough. 
on leave and they've gone to a bar and they've said, you know, they've said, you know, you have no idea what's going on. The yeah. word spreads. Yeah, word spreads. And word spreads very widely. And the Nazi state knows that by 43, Germans are aware. And so, um, you know, I mean, it, and so after 45, they're going to say, like, I didn't know exactly what Sobibor was. Well, maybe not. But, you know, you definitely knew that um, that your state at that time was, you know, killing every Jew they could get. You may not have known exactly how or where or by whom. Um, so from the Holocaust by bullets, like in the book I'm currently writing, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of, of Germans in this town in Latvia where within the first nine months they will <laughs> shoot to death 90% of the Jews in, in uh, Liapaya, Latvia. And it's noted that when they do these shooting waves where they'll shoot like 2,000 in a weekend, there are hundreds of spectators. You know, um, and these people just want to see what's going on. And they're often usually soldiers, um, Navy men, Wehrmacht, whatever, uh, you know, army. And then, you know, they, they will go back and they will, they will tell loved ones, girlfriends. They, they may not write it because they know, they, know they know enough not to write it, you know, with the censorship or the possible reading of the mail. But uh, they will go back at some point and they will then say, you know, this, this is what's going on. So it's very widespread. How much did the wider world know at this point? So my initial assumption was that we didn't really know, the West in particular, we didn't really know what was going on until we discovered the camps. And one of the documentaries I was watching, it was saying how I think the Soviets were the first to get that like physical, concrete evidence of some of these camps. And a lot of the images coming from the Soviets, we didn't believe at first because we just gathered that, it, or we assumed it was um, Soviet propaganda. Is, is that true? Did we really not reckon or understand the horrors of this until... The, we had advanced to the point where we started discovering these, the troops, or was there more knowledge around the world? Um, yeah, that's that's another kind of uh, kind of controversial subject, right? When did we know? I mean, there, there's a real debate about it. Um, you know, one one fruitful way of thinking about it is that there were bits of information that were out there, but the question is, when does that information become? knowledge. When do you take these little bits of information, string it together and say, okay, this is a concerted effort to kill every Jew. Not just these are atrocities, right? We we see, you know, this you know, we see, a, you know, excessive, you know, shooting here, evidence of clear atrocity there, but when 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 are you able to piece put the pieces together and say this is the big picture? It's so, a partly philosophic question. This is about the Holocaust. what constitutes knowledge. <laughs> yeah, and so um, you know, some of the um, the kind of standard account is that you know information trickles in, um, and if the Holocaust is really getting going in the summer of '41, it's trickling in, and uh, it's certainly by '43. I think most would say, uh, whether in London, Washington, Moscow, there's clear because we. I think we've gotten. Uh, uh, I forget the particular dates, you know, the Regner telegram and the experience that we have eyewitness accounts by people who have escaped from Auschwitz and other places, that the information is certainly there by the end of 43. Like, there is knowledge that we now know that this is happening. We now know that it is, it is you know, an effort to kill everyone, that these are not just kind of rogue commanders in a particular kind of theater of the war who happen to be on a particular day killing somebody, right? That the, the Nazis are, are out to kill everyone. Mm. Um, uh, and so it's not really 45, and it's not – it's independent, really, of the Soviets. I mean, we're getting this from – it has to do with uh, – we're getting out of um, – by 
uh, I mean, several means, but often by the very few people who seem to kind of escape and be able to say, I was a witness. And then, you know, connecting to like the, you know, the world Jewish, um, some of these kind of international Jewish organizations will then like pass that information on to, to, to Churchill and to FDR and others. Um, but to give you an example, I mean, the, uh, I don't know the specifics, but I think Richard Brightman in a, wrote a book about how in the summer of 41, I mean, at some point that the mobile killing squads are informing, you know, their kind of superiors in Berlin or elsewhere, uh, uh, some of them at least daily through radio, and we crack that radio. So we know they're shooting people, but you don't know exactly who or why or what's the program. So, so you know, shootings of even some Jews over the summer, you know, in the beginning of the Holocaust by bullets is, is being picked up by British intelligence right, over the radio, and then that, that stops. Mm. But, you know, that... But, I mean, you know, in the context of, of the war and, you know, just the wide-scale atrocities, the Nazis are shooting a lot of people. And not everyone is being, you know, is part of a special program of extermination. There's just so much death to go around. Yeah, I mean, they, to... yeah, they've got their reprisal. I mean, you know, there's just... Um, so so you can't just say, oh, well, uh, the fact that you're killing a number of them means that you intend to kill them all. No, I mean, in hindsight, we can say it was clear evidence, but at the time, you really couldn't. So... 42, 43, certainly by the end of 43, um, uh, you know, the Allies know that this that, that is happening. Mm. Yeah, so I think I got one more question on the Holocaust, sure. and that's just the psychology of the guards that were committing this mass murder. So one thing that, again, the documentary told me was um, this transition from, you're talking about the transition from the firing squad method of killing to the more systematic killing via gas chambers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And my assumption before learning more was that this transition was really just motivated by concerns of efficiency. There's a, It's just a more efficient method of killing. But there is this one, they were talking about this, how some guards actually it was having paying a psychological toll on them, just and you know engaging in this mm-hmm. kind of mass mm-hmm. killing day mm-hmm. in and day out and that part of the gas chamber initiative was motivated by that so they mm-hmm. wouldn't have to just like face the horror right um up front and close so yeah i guess it, th- the question would be is that true then the larger question is what was the psychology of the average nazi guard who is who are executing the these orders were they just following orders even if they were internally against it or were they just so blinded by the nazi ideology that they were convinced that what they were doing was right, or they had convinced themselves that Jews were subhuman. So there's no, there's nothing more morally wrong about that. It's another really big question, but yeah, and it's another very controversial question. Um, there's been, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at the scholarship of the last seventy years on, I mean, because at the heart of what you're asking are, you know, what motivated the perpetrators, right? Why did they do what they did? Um, and it is, it is a, you know, extremely important topic. Um, I can talk about. Uh, there's been some good work, some famous work that has helped us shed more light on it without necessarily, you know, proving anything conclusively. Um, no, I will say that yes. I mean, the, the simple question is: uh, the Nazis certainly in the f- uh, in the fall of '41, they are actually taking note of the psychological, emotional toil uh, uh, on the perpetrators, on the murderers, on the shooters. Because this is the Holocaust by bullets, right? So. One, an, an important, not the sole one, but an important um, impetus to um, coming up with a more systematic, more you know, efficient, but also kind of more, more mechanized, seemingly more removed way to kill so many Jews was that um, you know, German killers were having real problems. 
shooting people. Like, um, I mean, and, you know, and you, you took it like, I mean, you have to imagine the scale. Like at Bobby Yar, if if I remember, it's, I don't know if it's if it's twenty eight thousand or thirty three thousand, but it's you know, it's tens of thousands of people will be shot to death by a small group of people over two or three days. Now, I mean, who can Crazy. do that, right? I mean, in the case of the book I'm working on, you know, they're going to kill uh, 8,000 of the 9,000 Jews within six months in these different ways. But that means that, you know, they have two three-day action, and, you know, actions where they shoot more than 2,000. And we're talking about no more than 20 people, 20 shooters, right? Maybe 30, you know, three sets of 10. And, and that means, I mean, they are literally talking about how they're doing this from, you know, sunup to sundown, and you just you shoot, you do, and, um, and uh, you know, and many of them, I mean, it depends on who it's doing, but but even if you're a committed Nazi, if you hate the Jew, if you think the Jew is not human, I mean, there are degrees of anti-Semitism. You might be a murderous anti-Semite. You might just be a lukewarm one, but you don't really feel anything for them. You don't think that they're fellow humans. But regardless, I mean, that's tough. And so very quickly, I mean, they're drinking a lot. The Nazis very quickly decide to outsource it to, to local indigenous, you know, so Ukrainian helpers or Latvian helpers or whatever nationalist group, Belarusians, whoever, you know, you can get to help you murder the Jews. Uh, and they're hoping for some kind of better treatment under German occupation. You start to have try to get them to do more of it, but but you never stop doing it entirely. Um, you know, one famous book which I think really does uh, help get us much closer understanding is Christopher Browning and his book Ordinary Men. And and FYI, Christopher Browning is going to come speak at UConn. Oh, really? Um, he's like one of the most famous historians of the Holocaust. He's coming in April. Uh, to give him a talk, yes. Um, but his very famous book called Ordinary Men, um, he takes a kind of social psychological uh, interpretation as to how they could kill. And what he does it, which is so great, is for the longest time, or you know, o- o- over the course of decades, people put forth various interpretations, right? That the hell of war on the Easter Front brutalized the people, so they killed. Or they were all... Many people assume that the killers are young, you know, totally indoctrinated, super Nazi youth who, you know, join the SS and they go off and kill. Um, there's all these different ways, you know, that they, you know, that the, the killers were, were formed in the Third Reich. So part of the power of Browning's example is he looks at the res- a reserve police battalion that um, is tasked with participating in in the Holocaust at very, in various ways, at various stages, right? So shooting Jews, hunting them down, um, and, and, and clearing ghettos and stuff. And what's significant is that the Reserve Police Battalion 101 that he looks at, the, you know, the very nature of the battalion kind of undermines the classic interpretations. They're middle-aged, Mm. So they're not diehard 19-year-olds who have brainwashed always, kids. Who are brainwashed, yeah. They're middle-aged. Very few of them are members of the Nazi party. They come from an, you know, Hamburg, an urban setting in which Nazism wasn't very popular. Um, they see no frontline combat. Like, so he kind of, in this unit, he's able to say that these conventional reasons that have tried to explain why, why member, you know, a reserve police battalion or members of the Wehrmacht killed, they don't, they don't work. And he's using... Because the unit was investigated um, uh, for, a, for a post-war trial for crimes committed against the Holocaust. So we have depositions, we have trial testimony and stuff. And in their own words, they talk about, and what's really amazing, and what makes it so famous, and this wasn't that common, I don't think, but may not have been as unusual as, as we assume, the, 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 the first day that they're told that they're going to go and shoot you know, hundreds and hundreds of Jews, 
their immediate superior says, what we're about to do is, is horrible. And if any of you want to step out and not do it, that's fine. Really? Because one of the great classic legal uh, arguments of the defense was I had to do it. If I didn't do it, I would have been shot. Right, right? they Which forced is, me. Just right. following orders. Yeah, right. right. You know, you know, duress or putative duress, right? Uh, which the West German courts almost never accepted, right? And there's all, and at the time, legal experts were saying that's not true, um, that's not how they, it worked. But I mean, we have a clear example where this guy says, you know, this is what we're going to be asked to do is really bad. And I think one or two people said, I'm not doing it. Most did it. Uh, and then, you know, there was an expectation. So there was an understanding that, you know, even in subsequent uh, uh, violence, that you didn't have to do it, and yet most did. So Browning's question is, like, even when given the opportunity not to murder, most went along. And so he looks at social psychological. So he sees, and, and based on their interview, the pressure of conformity. You know, they're, mm. they, 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 when they're trying to defend themselves, they say, look, if I didn't do it, I'd be letting down my comrades, my mates. If I didn't shoot, someone else would. That wouldn't be fair to them. I would look weak. So these kind of, you know, um, peer pressure on some level. So not an explicit order, you have to do this, but right. that kind no, of this just implicit case, peer pressure. Right, so, so he's looking at these kind of implicit things, um, issues of, of careerism, uh, their reserve police battalion. Many of them um, hope to become professional police officers afterwards, so they're, they're worried that if they don't do it now, it won't look so good when the war is over and they try to get a job. Um, so things like that. I mean, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism seems to be there, he argues, but not in any kind of overt, bloodthirsty, I hate the Jew way. But in a way in which they didn't, there was like an absence of, of, of a sense of a feeling of humanity with them. Yeah, that's my, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but that's my sense of how mass evil can be perpetrated at, at scale. Just just how we're so imitative by nature. And obviously I see it myself. There's this one, I forget the psychology experiment, but there's this one experiment where you have someone in a room and they yeah. put smoke under the door. And if he's just there alone, the subject starts freaking out. He's like, there's smoke under the door. But then they put an actor in with him or maybe a couple of actors and they don't do anything when the smoke comes under the door. So he looks to the other people in the room and he says, oh, well, they're not doing anything, so it must be fine. So if you just have everyone accepting or not standing up to this evil, it just becomes normalized because you assume that because other people aren't doing anything about it, it must be fine. And I don't know. But um, I thought we could just, I'm not sure how much time you have left, but I, I wanted to hit some of your work in particular. Sure, probably about 10 more minutes. Cool, okay, cool. Um, so, circling back to your book, From Nazism to Communism, German School Teachers Under Two Dictatorships, we already briefly talked about it, but, um, so if I'm not mistaken, this focuses on the industrial city of Brandenburg, mm -hmm. is that right? And one of your main theses is that, um, again, the kind of resilience of the German teachers under these two authorita authoritarian dictatorships, Nazism, and then communism after 1945. So I guess one question would just be, what are some reasons that the educational system was able to remain resilient? Um, what are some of the factors? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would, I would, I would phrase it as... I, in terms of resilience, I mean, there, there's yeah. it's a certain sense of resilience, but but what I was interested in, um, you know, uh, how did the experience of Nazism kind of predispose the the population uh, that was the, the kind of 16 million 
um, Germans who were became part of East Germany. I mean, how did that shape their under, their 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 willingness to to create you know construct a new German communism, uh, participate? Um, you know, uh, how did that? How did the twelve years, the immediate kind of antecedent, um, influence their behavior? It, yeah, after this, like, you know, kind of um, profound shift, you know, the collapse of the Third Reich, Soviet occupation. Um, and so in terms of the schools, what, what, what I was interested in is, um, and, and, and what I saw is, you know, going to the sources, I was interested in, well, so if that's one big question that I hope to look at, right? To take one particular group of people, to follow their lives in the Third Reich, and then, and then to see you know, to tell this, this kind of group biography in the first kind of decade or so in East Germany, um, and then and, and then to, to illuminate, you know, what changed for them, what didn't, how how the first period of the, uh, this initial era influenced the, the the second one. One of the goals of doing that, and this is, you know, I'm starting this kind of in the late 1990s, was to kind of ground in a more kind of clear, concrete fashion uh, a, a debate that was going on in poli sci and history, in which we were kind of, and, and it wasn't happening just in the 1990s, but comparing the two dictatorships, right? I mean, there was, you know, there's a body of scholarship that wants to talk about in what ways is Nazism or fascism similar to 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 kind of um, Bolshevism or you know communism, right? And and that's often done in a very kind of programmatic way, right? You know, they're both single party dictatorships and mobilization of the youth, use of secret police, lack of democracy, and I was curious, like, you know, how did the a group of people who experienced both, you know, how, how do we see uh, similarities and, and, and dissimilarities in the lived experiences of people who, who and, and, and to use that as a way of to say here in which they're similar or not similar. So this gets to the resilience because both regimes, for example, at different points pursued kind of similar policies regarding a teaching staff. They both value teaching very much. They both said, you know, we're going to create a, a new utopia, a new vision, a new man. And one of the key elements of that is going to be we're going to have new teachers. So the Nazis say we're going to purge all of these leftist teachers, all these Democrats, all these old guard, even conservatives. And we're going to get a new generation of like you know, zealous Nazi teachers. And they're going to help create the Nazi man, the Nazi woman, the new, the future of a Nazi Germany. Right. And the, the East German communists and the Bol and the Soviets are going to kind of say the same thing. They're going to come in, they're gonna, we're going to get rid of all the Nazis, we're going to denazify, and to build the new kind of, um, you know, the new proletariat of the future, we want also new special, you know, vetted, specially trained teachers. So, so we have the same process, one will start in 33, one will start in 45, 46. And, and what you see is for similar reasons, like things that are just, don't sound very kind of sophisticated, but have to do with just material shortages, lack of staff. Both regimes have to radically curtail their ability to transform the teaching staff. So it's not really an innate resilience among the teachers. I mean, there's, there's, there, um, that that may be part of it, but mm. you know, it, it, it's more like the the kind of the weakness of, of of a kind of utopian political vision. The idea that you can come in and somehow. It's, it's the same reason denazification failed, right? You can't come in and just imprison, you know, the six million Nazis. Like, I mean, you know, the Americans find that out, the Soviets. Um, you can't shoot them all. I mean, you can't fire every teacher who was a Nazi in 1945 or 46 because who's going who's gonna to teach? Um, I mean, the, the, the communists will have this program of, of Neulehrer where they will try to kind of do these kind of crash programs to train them enough so that they can enter the schools and so they can then fire the, the, the politically tainted teacher. But 
those those new teachers don't stay. They don't get many, many of them aren't willing to get it done. And and so you get to the point where even by the 1950s, what struck me with the evidence is you have a lot of the same teachers who were teaching in 1933 are still there mm. in 19, let's say the ni- late 1940s. And according, you know, to what we've known before that, like that, that shouldn't be the case. The Nazis were supposed to have gotten rid of many of them, and then, of course, any Nazis. So, so I'm, I'm, I, I, there's a kind of, you know, there were, you know, structural constraints to these kind of utopian political projects. Right. There's practical problems. Practical there problems. There being a shortage of teachers. Shortage of teachers. Uh, bureaucratic infighting. I mean, uh, 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 you know, various things. Uh, and yet, you know, I, I show, but but I, I, I'm certainly not going to make the, the case that teach the teaching staff was totally unaffected by Nazism. I mean, living 12 years in national, you know, in the, in the, in the Third Reich did impact them. Uh, often the consequences were unintended. They were um you know, so there's a you know the experiences during the war had a far greater impact on transforming the teaching staff than six years of of serious kind of institutional and ideological the attempted kind of um, transformation along Nazi lines from 33 to 39. So um, so yeah, I mean you, you, you there is a resilience in, in certain values. Um, uh, I mean you you. Uh, that is part of it, but 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 it has a lot to do with with just chronicling within a twenty year period to to seemingly very different, but not really actually that different attempts at creating again a kind of political utopia and 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 the, and, and and how they tried to use teachers to create that and, and and to point out the ways in which it was far less successful than we thought for such a long time. And, and to explore the different impacts that had on these teachers. Do we know, so this group of teachers that remained teaching through Nazism and communism, do we know whether the content that they were teaching, whether their syllabus radically changed? Is it they were, were they in the 1930s just teaching strict racial biological determinism? And then when the communists took over, they were told to just teach about the Marxist historical dialectic or, so, or yeah, did they yeah. I mean part of what I look at is I mean some things are easier to change than other things um, you know changing curricula is, is pretty easy yeah. and that's and, and so yeah undoubtedly like you know if you look at you know what students were learning in 1938 it was different than what they were learning in 1932 and it was obviously wildly different than what you know, you know what what math assignments are like for a fifth grade class in 1949. Um, but again, I mean, it's you know we have so many misconceptions about the way the Nazi state or any of the, either one of these dictatorships function, right? I mean, we still very much, and I see this with students today, you know, err in this belief that they were these kind of perfect totalitarian regimes in which you know so you know like friction free from top down, you know, and, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, and, and, and neither state was anything like that, right? Mm. The Nazis come to power, they want to change the curriculum completely, and yet the first textbooks show up five years later. Mm. It takes them years. This is the Nazi state, right? The state that's supposed to be like, you know, with a Gestapo allegedly everywhere was completely not true. It's another kind of myth. Um, uh, uh, you know, that you know, seems all powerful. And yet, you know, of course, they have... You know, they, they modify textbooks and they remove pages and add, you know, they have supplements and they do get new material very quickly. But in terms of a brand new textbook, it takes years. 
And after the total war of World War II, it's going to take, even though you know, you'll have new lesson plans in 45, and there'll be like provisional materials being circulated, not much, and it'll take forever for the new um, communist textbooks to show up. So even in the area which should be the easiest to implement this educational revolution, it took far longer than people thought, and it was f- much more challenging. And when you get to something as 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 far less easy to deal with, that is like taking politically suspect or old teachers, get rid of them, and put competent new bodies. That was that was just it was kind of beyond the abilities of either. Mm. So I know, I know your, our time's running out. I thought just an ending question would be if you wanted to say a few words on the current research that you're doing right? So Nazi hunters. Yeah, so I'm writing, uh, I've kind of written about half of a book on West German Nazi hunters. Uh, it's the story of, a of, uh, in the late 1950s, you'll get the beginning of a second wave of Nazi investiga- uh, investigations and uh, prosecutions and trials of the vast majority of Germans who were not tried or punished, you know, from 45 to 49, like either as part of the Nuremberg trials or, or even German trials, um, you know, you know uh, especially um, perpetrators who had been um, active in the Holocaust, right? Uh, many of them, you know, many of those crimes weren't dealt with in the, you know, in the initial uh, prosecution of, of Nazi crimes. And so the, it gets going and really in the second half of the 1950s, the Germans set up this elite, special agency to kind of coordinate and carry out most of the preliminary investigations that lead to most of the great uh, trials in, in, in West Germany of the 60s and 70s and 80s. And I uh, am telling the story of that agency by looking at one of their very first investigations. So it's like kind of narrative. Um, you know, it's, it's, you, you, it's the story of, 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 the, of the, the detective hunt for what happened, who did it, where are they, um, and it's uh, so half of Ger- just to clarify, half of Germany's under Soviet rule at this point, and a quarter, then the a other quarter, half, a quarter, a quarter, yeah, or, yeah, okay. yeah, a quarter. And um, then the rest is under Western rule. Yeah, so so I mean, um, for forty five to forty nine, it's divided. It, the, the the three there's th- the three Western allies each have a zone, uh, and then in forty nine they be, they formed the Federal Republic of Germany. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. And then the the, you know, the 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 zone of occupation that had been done by the Soviets becomes the German Democratic Republic, so East Germany. Hmm. So it's a story of in the West, um, and you know it has to do with um, the efforts of the West German state to use the courts as part of a process of coming to terms with the Nazi past. That's, mm. you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, and there's a huge scholarship on this and there's a lot of work and much of it's very good, you know, about looking at the different ways in which the Germans struggled with recognizing, owning up to admitting to, you know, the, the, the legacy of the crimes of Nazism, what happened and, and, and its consequences. Mm. Yeah. It seems like at this point, modern Germany has almost, it's, I, Maybe I'm wrong, but they've completely recognized with it, and I guess that was just a gradual. Yeah, yeah. Process. I mean, it's exemplary. I mean, I'm, I'm, I may not may not go so far as to say completely, but but yeah. I mean, I, there's no other country in the world that has um, as fully as come to terms, honestly struggled with, and 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 as successfully without without getting without it being entirely successful. But but there is no other country that's that's put in as much work and come as far in confronting the Nazi, their own, you know, um, kind of uh, problematic past. Well, I've stolen enough of your time, sir. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, thank you. Till next time. <laughs>